I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Chinchilla Squeaks for another instalment. I am Chris Chinchilla, joining you from an increasingly sunny northern hemisphere. It's a little bit chilly, but it's nice to have some sun. I was a little unwell last week, so I didn't uh, put an episode out, but I have uh, quite a bit to go through this episode. And most of it is about AI and banks, as you might expect. It's been quite a few weeks in technology. And even my interview this week with Marshall from Tab9 is AI-related. They have their own coding assistant uh, in opposition, in competition to many of the others you might have heard of. Let's start with a few links. If you have watched or heard any news you heard of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and all the knock-on effect that is now happening. I don't want to dig too much into it. Uh, it obviously affects technology. It obviously affects the sector. I still personally work for a tech company, fortunately with no money with them. But of course, probably with a lot of clients, there's going to be a lot of ripple effect from this that we're still yet to experience. And I think it's going to be some rocky times, I must admit. It concerns me ever so slightly. Uh, just having come back from a small career break, maybe having to take another one is not quite what I want to do right now. But we'll see. I suppose, um, I don't know, these things happen. You have to roll with the punches, adapt, as, as they say. But we'll see what happens. Um, I'm not going to go into any of my own analysis, but I'm going to forward you to three of my favorite links on the stories that give different nuances in, in good detail. The first is from Nitish Power on Slate, which sort of goes through a timeline of what happened from rough start to rough finish. Of course, it's not necessarily finished, but at least from the rough start and how we got here um, and what got here and what got us here and why a bank you've probably never heard of has caused such tribulations across a sector. Um, so first start with that one for a little bit of, uh, of a timeline with, with some with some good detail, not just a couple of bullet points. Next is Jeff Stein in the Washington Post talking about is this a bailout or not? So the American government and also the HSBC in the UK have stepped in to quote unquote bailout slash quote unquote save Silicon Valley Bank. Or did they? Actually, it's, it's sort of interesting what's happened and it's different. And in the States especially, and I guess in the UK to a certain extent, it was remarkably quick flexible and well thought out. Um, but this post goes into a little bit more detail about what it is and what it's going to be moving forward um, and and what that might mean for the bank, for their account holders and et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, Chris Stokel Walker in Wired covers what the ongoing repercussions might be of this. And this is something that definitely sparked in my mind, the ongoing repercussions of um, loss of contracts for bigger companies, for safer companies, this ripple effect of people getting the jitters, cancelling business, um, being less or being more frugal with their money, et cetera, et cetera. And the knock on effect that will happen. It's always makes me think of when a, when a car plant closes, 
and people forget about all the suppliers from everything from screws up to catering etc that are also affected by that and then the knock-on effect of that etc 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 and we're yet to see what all of that will be and i am talking to you on the day that credit suisse also um got into more trouble i think this is one of the interesting things they've actually been in trouble for some time it's not necessarily new but then market jitters will, will force these things to the to the forefront so we will see what we will see i guess <laughs> i will admit uh, gpt4 was released yesterday i haven't really got into detail myself about what that all entails yet so i won't talk about it maybe until next week but I am doing research for my next episode of Inbox We Trust, which you can find on my YouTube channel. And we're going to be looking at music. And um, Killian, my co-host, actually said a really interesting link with me on Music Radar about um, quite a famous uh, mixing engineer, Andrew Schlepps, talking about how a lot of AI music sort of sounds the same because it's all been trained on the same stuff. And this is something I noticed with some of my experiments, actually. Uh, and some of my experiments with some of the AI tools. He talks about certain genres, but I've made, made quite a few notes of some, even some of the, the plugins I've seen, uh, and these are not even the kind of full generative AI type music plugins, about how they seem to be so biased towards electronic music. And I haven't really heard much from them. And this could just be the people I'm seeing here, especially in a city like Berlin with a lot of electronic DJs. Uh, like, where's the acoustic music or something like that? And And just how much like all the writing is going to be the same, is the music going to be all the same? And I guess the question you could ask is, does it matter? There's plenty of market for music and generic sounding pop. I mean, <laughs> that's not new. Human-made music has sounded pretty similar in the charts over the years, and obviously it's different each time, but it can still have a, a sound for a few years, and a lot of the time it sounds very generic. It comes from people you've never heard of. I think... A plethora of just quick buck making AI generated music will will flood the charts in the near future, especially now with streaming services. You can just pump out a track, get it out, make some money, pump out another one, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The concept is not new, the methodology is new. The other thing I found very interesting with this article is is Andrew has a lot of uh, other outlets of his own thoughts on these issues and others. And there's a lot of really good links in this article. If you're interested in music and music technology at all, then I would recommend you read this article and then follow some of the links to his YouTube channel, to his blog, which I haven't yet got into any detail on, but I certainly will because uh, it was a really, it was a really good post that, that, that matched a lot of my thoughts actually. And, um, and uh, I think much like much like everything I'm talking about in this episode, it remains to be seen what's going to happen next and what impact it will have. Um, but it's nice to have these luminaries who've sort of transitioned between eras and scenes to, to give us some context, I guess, as we make that transition ourselves. And finally, I'm going to cover an article on The Atlantic called The Moral Case Against Equity Language. I found this interesting because I, through my work and some of the open source projects I contribute to, actually actively maintain a couple of tools that help you um, 
help you match your text to style guides, to, to rulings of how your language should be used. And some of these include insensitive language. Alex is a common one. And I've actually even did a presentation and a blog post and a video on this very subject using this tool uh, last year as well. Things like removing workmen and having workers and um, gendering of language and et cetera, et cetera. And it seems that this is a trend that has been spreading quite widely, not just uh, through these tools, but actual uh, style guides talking about different words you should use instead of words that were used before. And let's, let's just have a look at some of the examples first. So don't use stand Americans blind and crazy. The first two fail at inclusion because not everyone can stand and not everyone living in the country is a citizen. The third and fourth, even as figures of speech, are insulting to the disabled. Um, and then there are, of course, some, some possibly some wider known but still controversial ones like reduce, uh, removing slave uh, in tech, that's a different conversation, but in this particular case, an enslaved person. It changes the phrasing. And some of these make um, – actually, I'm trying not to judge these, but some of them I think are easier to maybe see and understand and change thinking around than others, I guess. Like enslaved still, in my mind, sums up the context and the discussion without – but changes the perspective, which, which I think is interesting. It's saying that someone else did this to them and it's not their problem. Well, it is their problem, but, you know, they didn't do it to themselves, that kind of thing. So, you know, some of them are, are clearer than others, shall we say. And then a lot of generally kind of NGOs and uh, progressive organizations have adopted a lot of these guides. And this is an American-focused article, but the American Cancer Society, the American Heart Association... Uh, psychological association, medical association, etc., 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 etc. But the interesting, the interesting discussion that is had here is is that there has become such a gap between the way that a lot of people talk, and this would include a lot of people who are on the fence on these issues over to ones who are generally opposed to them, that, of course, being told to use these phrases causes a backlash, as you might expect, as often is the case. Whenever you get one extreme, well, not extreme, but one... I'm going to use the word extreme just to illustrate the point. It's not quite what I mean. I don't know. One extreme um, action to something, you'll get uh, probably an equally, if not more, extreme reaction to it. So you get a sort of populist backlash. But the other interesting thing is that with some of these words, of course, the people deciding what words we should use are not necessarily the people they represent. So the, the case in point here is um, the American Cancer Society advises Latinx along with the equally gender-neutral Latin, Latinat, and Latinu should be used. But um, the argument was a lot of people from those communities had no idea that's what was being used to refer to them and equally had very little input on whether those should be the words that were used and whether they liked them. And there's some interesting case in point of, of especially race words and, and some other community words in, in minorities where often actually they repurpose offensive words internally 
and uh, and give them a new life. And sometimes having someone from outside of that circle deem what it is they should be called is kind of more just as much of a problem. <laughs> so, and and I think this is often the aspect with this kind of discussion. You have well-meaning people, but the result is not always what is wanted. Um, you end up with either you know, the people who they were aimed to help not being particularly helped or at worst case being offended. You end up with people on the other side of the discussion who also weren't really involved, just pissed off and angry and thus causing a worse reaction against things. You know, someone who is maybe on the fence about Latin people or transgender people being told they have to use this certain language then makes them more resentful about a group that they weren't even necessarily resentful about in the first place, this kind of thing. And then there's another sub-discussion in here saying that even people who who work under these guidelines often break them because they don't understand them, they're too confusing, they don't always make sense, and end up inventing their own terms that they feel kind of match the guidelines but are different. And so you end up with a big muddle of different words, um, <laughs> that no one really understands what they mean and whether they are deemed offensive or not, etc., etc. So I would recommend if this interests you at all, this subject, and it kind of does, evolution of language does interest me quite a lot, have a read of it to, to dig into some of the subtleties. I may not be summarizing it quite so well as I could be. Um, because, you know, sometimes that happens. And um, But the topic is an interesting one and how language can evolve. Language evolves in its own way. And sometimes that's almost better than deeming what language should be from above um, and letting the, I suppose in summary, letting the people you're trying to help dictate that language instead. And that may not be the way you want it to be, but that may be the better way to go about evolving language. Hmm. Your thoughts on a postcard or an email or a social media message. You can find my contact details at kristenschiller.com if you have any input on this or any of the other stories I've covered. Now my interview with Marshall of Tab9 covering their AI-assisted code editor and how it compares to increasing amount of competition. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Marshall Jung of Tab9. Now, Tab9 calls itself an AI assistant for software developers, but this has been something we've heard about a lot recently, but I do believe that Tab9 is not what you may immediately think of. What What is Tab9 and what is it doing um, in this very busy space at the moment for AI code completion? Uh, yes, thank you for the question. I appreciate uh, being here today. Um, code completion tools have been around for quite some time. Most developers would be familiar with the uh, sort of semantic suggestions that could pop up in any of them. Uh, the advent of transformer models or language models in general allowed any sort of language, programming languages being one of them, to be incorporated as sort of a more robust suggestion engine for mm. developers inside their IDE. 
Um, Tab 9 started about eight years ago. Uh, okay. We started first in the Java space, but have mm-hmm. expanded to most common languages. And uh, recently, in the last two to three years, have uh, started actually utilizing um, these large language models uh, with some fine tuning in them to provide uh, both inline and larger snippet suggestions for uh, uh, developers while they're working directly in their IDE. Um, But as we will hopefully cover today, that isn't really the only uh, tool that you can extract from these types of models. Uh, One of the ones we just released is uh, unit testing. So, Mm -hmm. for example, you can ask the same tool to uh, generate uh, unit tests on existing code inside of your IDE or your repository. So uh, we can certainly break down how that works, but uh, it's uh, just uh, one of of many features that can be Mm -hmm. engineered out of these types of algorithms. Let's go back a step. You said for about eight years. Um, I mean, there's been kind of uh, not AI based, but uh, completion based tools based on linting and common patterns and um, uh, <laughs> type definitions and, and things like that for some time in IDEs. I mean, you know, they're basically just sort of reading, reading what information they have available to them and not necessarily context aware, just filling in things here and there. But eight years ago for this kind of level of AI based, uh, completion is, it's pretty ahead of its time. So as far as I'm aware, um, so what, what, what brought you here? What was the, what was the journey to, to create the product in the first place? Um, yeah, so our two founders uh, actually recognized this type of a tool as being something a little bit more robust. And then mm-hmm. there's some market opportunity for this. Um, they actually built upon uh, the tool, which is originally built by a, a developer in Canada. Um, he exited and, and wanted to do different things. But our two developers, uh, 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 our two founders, picked that up and said, well, based in the Java language, at least initially, Mm -hmm. um, there was some robust testing around generative uh, adversarial networks or GANs, which sort of predated the whole Mm -hmm. uh, transformer uh, neural networks, which which came around in 2017. So they started using these very small models, uh, largely trained to run on an individual developer's laptop. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they they were that small at the time. And it was just an enhancement to the existing suggestions. They were, they were literally just building slightly longer suggestions within those sort of standard uh, IDE-based um, context and, and uh, type, uh, sorry, context type suggestions for your cursor. And then, you know, once the transformer models came around, uh, they, they decided that this was something that they could build a little bit, bit larger. So mm-hmm. it was sort of an iterative um, understanding of where the these types of technologies were being used and uh, they, they were kind of the first in the market when it came to um, understanding, you know, integrations as well, because as much as it's interesting to build these types of, of models with the mathematics and uh, the engineering on the back end, getting them to a developer in a way that allows them to be more efficient uh, is actually a relatively difficult user interface problem to solve. So uh, a lot of the engineering goes along. How do you take these types of features, which you can easily engineer uh, and deliver them to a developer in a way that allows them to use them successfully rather than it being being a sort of uh, mental burden on their development process. Mm. It, it, 
I must admit, I'm actually surprised to hear that it's been around just as, a, as an idea for some time, I guess because of all the noise in the room from the past few years. Um, but uh, how widely used were they? I mean, I, I could look at your client list and then see quite a few well-recognized names, but um, you know, how widely used have these tools been uh, before the, the, the buzz recently? Not much, right? I mean, okay. even before I think um, some other tools came out in 2022, uh, Tab9 had a fair number of, of individual users, but it was really sort of a, um, you know, there was a free uh, model out there and then you could pay for sort of an upgraded model, but it was really individual students. It was individual developers, freelancers that, that used uh, these type of tools. And to a certain extent, we're both extremely happy and a little bit overwhelmed at all of the uh, publicity that has come out around these types of tools mm. um, in the last one. And, and truthfully, it really kicked off when, um, OpenAI released ChatGPT, and this type of technology really came to the forefront. Although a lot of people who have worked in this industry for a while weren't particularly surprised no, about that no. uh, coming out. I mean, I think we all uh, perhaps remembered there was a Google employee um, in early 2022 uh, that that ended up, I think, going public uh, about how the internal Google AI had become sentient. And yeah. everybody kind of scoffed at the time. But in reality, we started to kind of see these types of things uh, function. And so when ChatGPT yeah. came out, the wave started and uh, Tab9 has... Uh, uh, pretty successfully, I think, started to, to build some some uh, re name recognition around this type yeah. of technology. And there's two things I could kind of see that you do a little bit differently from some of the other uh, options, um, as far as I'm aware. One that I think seems interesting for the, the I guess, the business model you're going for, the, the fact that you can um, learn, match, and I guess train on uh, private repos. So you, you sort of build up this um, internal style of completion as opposed to just completion from anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. Think about it kind of like a pyramid, for example. Um, there's a lot of what I call foundational models out there. Mm -hmm. You'll you hear them referred to pretty commonly. There's GPT. Uh, Google will have Lambda. Mm -hmm. There's Bloom, um, AI21. So there's a bunch of these foundational models, but they require a lot of computing power and a fair amount of money to do. Uh, so smaller companies don't necessarily have access to the ability yep. to build those models. What we do is we take the next step up in the pyramid. And what you can do is fine tune these models. This is type of transfer learning. Um, and you can take a, a narrower data set and you can then kind of focus that foundational model on this narrower data set and deliver a model that is more, um, is better at at a particular task. And it doesn't have to be programming languages. You could really do this with anything from the yeah. foundational models. But for us, that's what we do is we uh, harness the best of breed from these large foundational models and then use it to train a smaller corpus of data that we both quality control and make sure is sort mm -hmm. of fully open sourced, you know, permissive licenses, high quality code. And we build sort of a large tab nine open source model. From mm -hmm. there, you can focus even further up the pyramid at taking that type of model and fine tuning it again on, say, customer code. And so if they have non-proprietary data, perhaps data that's never been 
then in the open source, um, you can then train a model specifically on that code and deliver it to their teams running in their environment, which gives you some flexibility at, to meet both security and, and perhaps compliance co constraints. Yeah, yeah. And I can definitely see that with some of the clients you list, like uh, <laughs> SpaceX, NVIDIA, BMW, O2, Cisco, these sorts of companies that would be very, I think, would be want to be very cautious about what got in and what got out. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and similarly, um, I notice you mention, uh, where was it? Um, code native models. And I don't know if this is something that's unique to Tab9 or if it's a, across some of the other tools, but it, it sort of seems bizarrely obvious that you'd want to only train um, a model on things that are relevant. Uh, there's no point training Java on JavaScript, for example, but is that unique to you? And the other tools just filter it out or, uh, sorry, is that unique to you and you're more specialized or do the other tools sort of just train on everything and just filter out based on the current language? Um, it, essentially, yes. There's a, a little. There's some nuance to that. Yeah. Um, there, there is some patterns that perhaps run across multiple coding languages. So while you can train yeah, a model true. on like a specific language, mm. um, you oftentimes will gain flexibility um, and robustness in a model uh, mm. if you want to give it to somebody who might work slightly outside of what the data set that it was specifically trained on. So there's a balancing act and a bit of an art there for not over specifying the training data set. So you end up with a rigid model, which doesn't mm. work the second you step out of its knowledge base. But keep in mind, since this is these are sort of natural language type models uh, under it there there's value to having uh documentation for example matched mm -hmm. with the base mm -hmm. code so that you can have that conversational interaction and of course you can turn it around the other direction and generate documentation from code for example it's a two-way street so when it comes to like code native as you 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 want to be both very targeted with your data, understand its quality, its provenance, and its applicability, but also not over-constrain that model such that whatever you end up training for your customer works brilliantly for the first couple of weeks. And then as they sort of mature in the development, they suddenly step outside the model's uh, area of expertise and suddenly it doesn't work very well. So there's a lot of balancing act there that I think uh, is, is interesting. So you touched on uh, kind of other side uses of, of tools like tab nine. Uh, and you recently announced, um, a feature that I would imagine will probably make a lot of developers and their managers quite happy. Um, AI powered unit testing generation. Mm -hmm. Um, firstly, just going back a step, do you, do you currently, or indeed, will you in the future also generate other sorts of tests? Um, or is it just unit tests for the time being? Uh, the new feature generates unit tests, which I think most of our enterprises yeah. have asked for. It is a bit of what we call the grimly details that most uh, developers yeah. really do not want to do. Yeah. So taking that burden off their hands is is, uh, is something I think we can have a lot of impact with. But yeah, your question is pretty accurate. If, if you think about how you want to use these tools, if it's not just unit testing, mm. if you have a place where you can train that model and say larger integration tests that you would have within that overall code base, there isn't any reason you couldn't train it to generate larger mm. tests itself. Just mm -hmm. give it the examples to train on and away you go. And how, how do you give, I mean, the thing, of course, with tests is they're supposed to be there to give 
developers the confidence that code works as designed, but we all know the 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 concept of, of flaky tests and unreliable tests and things like that. So how do you give people using this the confidence that these auto-generated tests will um, will be useful, will be reliable? <laughs> It's a good question because, you know, we're not really in the business of trying to replace engineers, yeah. even test engineers, right? We don't, we're not interested in replacing them. So ultimately we're not asking uh, a company to trust us in blindly as in generate tests. If it mm. says pass, you know, you're good. Yeah. Um, there's, there's still a review process and we certainly don't want tab nine to take the place of any sort of security and compliance review of the code either. So there there's uh, it, it shortens that software development life cycle, but does not replace anything in it. Um, the, the confidence would come largely with the integration directly in the IDE. So if you're generating larger tests and uh, you have within that model, both the source code that you're trying to integrate, as well as sort of the knowledge base for the integration testing itself, you can do the overall model performance by holding out a certain level of those generation, those generated tests, and then back testing them for accuracy and, and basically run those metrics until you're quite confident that the, you, the tests that are generated are at above a certain level that you, you believe to be accurate. Right. And now, None of these are ever going to be 100% accurate. It's not the nature of machine learning. Um, but any of these models generate metrics as you test them. And if it doesn't meet that, well, then you might want to go back and reconsider. Perhaps yeah. there's some additional data that needs to be included. Yeah. I yeah. think this is a, a lot of um, where uh, these tools will will fill in, in the future is doing a lot of the, the grunt work that hopefully people then edit and approve. But of course, remains to be seen whether they do or they don't. But <laughs> right, yeah. that's, the, that's the ideal. Um, just picking up on some other things you, you sort of mention a little bit in, in your blog around the differences between Tab9 and Copilot. I don't really want to go into the the details of that, because I think Copilot's had enough exposure as it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, one of the controversies in it, of it is it's the fact it's picked up um, code that people didn't necessarily want included in models. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, how how do you prevent something similar happening? Yeah, uh, that's that's a really great question. I think this is probably the number one question we get from mm. enterprise uh, customers who, who, are, who are looking at evaluating these tools. Um, th the true fact of the matter is generative AI can always, no matter how much you, you don't like the idea, can always copy code, right? Mm. It can actually bring code in from the, the, uh, you know, the training data set and, and propagate it. And, and of course we've seen examples of that online, uh, with Copilot. It's a risk you run with generative AI and it doesn't matter whose tool it is, right? The way that you minimize that and, and I always bang this home with customers is you've got to understand the data that your model is trained on. You can't get away from just, you know, emptying the entire bin into the training, uh, you know, pipeline and just, you know, hit the go button. Uh, yes, it will train a model there, but if you truly don't understand what's going into your model, you probably can't trust what's coming out of it. Now, 
Tab 9 specifically and very deliberately takes the tack that we train only on fully permissive open source repositories. And all of them are both reviewed uh, from our perspective on sort of a quality control basis. You know, is it a good, well starred? Is it got have good contributions. And then we, we also do scan that code as well to make sure that we're not introducing any sort of uh, known vulnerabilities mm -hmm. into the training data set. But again, if there is a zero day exploit out there and we don't catch it because nobody knows about it, yeah, that can be introduced into the models. And I think that's something that everybody who uses these tools should be fully aware of. Um, the only way to truly get around that is building a fully custom model without foundational training on an enterprise's underlying code, mm -hmm. which is fully possible to do, but requires a fair amount of expertise, additional cost and, and, uh, and a, an effort. So, yep, there's you've hit on a lot of these details and it's, it's good that you ask them because people need to yeah. know it. Yeah. And just one other thing, because it's sort of something I just I just glanced over in the in the blog post uh, press release for the unit generation, the unit mm. test generation, um, and I'm not 100 percent sure if this is strictly true with with Copilot. Uh, you claim here that at least with the unit test generation, I don't know if it's similar with um, with every other aspect, but that uh, Tab Nine does learn from code as you write it. Is that also a point of difference between you and Copilot, or have I just misunderstood that with... Uh, uh Tab nine has the ability to do what we call team training. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like there, there isn't, at least to my knowledge yet, and I, I, I'm learning new things every day, right? At mm. least to my knowledge, there's no such thing as a real time no. reinforcement large yeah. language model. No. Like that doesn't exist. But what you can do if your model is relatively small enough is you can capture user uh, inputs or edits perhaps to suggested code and then use that as a retrain process on sort of a short order uh, uh, um, uh, situation, right? So you, you can do sort of, we'll call it batch learning on these mm. types of, of situations. So that's, that is something that uh, you certainly can engineer within a, uh, a deployment for an enterprise. Yeah. Mm. And what about some of the other areas of the software development workflow that developers don't always like to work on? Um, I guess, Things like uh, documentation. Um, I have actually tried Copilot with writing, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it does okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just, uh, can Tab Nine handle anything like that as well? Uh, yeah, we are planning to release that this year. Okay. Um, and again, like I said earlier, like large language models don't just take sort of natural language and generate yeah. code. You can take code and generate natural language. And that's what Copilot is doing. But yeah. again, the, the, the truth of the matter is what kind of documentation was used as an augmentation to the code that you're trying to generate? Because of course, it's going to go out there, look at that code, find similar pattern code, mm. and then try to generate the documentation that went along with that code. Now, if that code is, or that documentation is written in, let's be honest, most and engineers are just going to try to get as as much detail and as few words as possible. And some of it might not even be like truly English. Uh, going the other direction is going to be tough because the algorithm doesn't innately understand English. Yeah. So it might be generating a little bit of difficult to read documentation. Yeah. So again, if you've got great documentation for your code, by all means, if you're working with tab nine to train a custom model, please include it because that mm. will always make things better.
Are there uh, any other areas you can think of that this would be applicable to? I don't know. I'm trying to think of um, all these other, there's so many kind of things as code now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other places that uh, that AIs could assist with the, the generation of, I don't know. Um, maybe you've got better ideas than me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I spend most of my day focused on the code space, but... Um, you know, outside of, of tab nine in general, you have the opportunity to generate these types of things in the medical field. And I think that, um, open AI released sort of the bio GPT, um, engine specifically around, Hey, I'm going to train it on a bunch of medical databases. And then I ask it questions. Can it give me back technical, uh, you know, feedback documentation or even diagnoses based on a series of observed, um, you know, uh, uh, characteristics, right? Mm. That, that might be a thing that can do, uh, you know, these models will probably enhance chatbots for helping out, whether you've got an issue yeah. with your, you, sky's the limit here, but obviously I think real applications are going to end up being very specific, right? Yeah. And in, in industry verticals, uh, I, I say, and this is sort of my, um, my speech, I really love the idea of the sort of chat GPT or the conversational AI, which is really broad. Um, but ultimately, I, I don't see how that's truly disruptive to like individual industries. They're going to want something like that, but trained very narrowly mm. to avoid lots of issues, but mostly to become more a little bit deeper and less wide, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And actually, something I probably should have asked at the beginning, but it just occurred to me, like, what's the what's the kind of highest level uh, a developer can go with with tab nine? Is it purely around I've started typing a function, it starts kind of having a look at what I'm doing and trying to add completion? Or can I say, you know, write a function that loops through the alphabet and et cetera, et cetera, and then it just does the whole thing? Yeah, um, there's two different ways. And I think you, you kind of hit on there's people use tab nine and these tools in, in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. The conversational style, which, you know, I demonstrate to a lot of folks, which is start writing a comment and be mm-hmm. as descriptive as possible of what you wanted to do. Um, oftentimes changing a few uh, specifics in that comment and being more like if you have an idea of what maybe the library name is or the function name is, that can oftentimes help. So that's a way to get like a longer, more like fully fledged function where you generate the entire thing top to the bottom. But that actually isn't the way that we find that most developers mm. use tab nine. Um, they tend to use it in sort of the flow state, right? They don't mm. want to type a comment and then have to come out of that to debug 15, 20 lines of code. What they would prefer is like they know what they're doing. So they would prefer just to have an inline comment or sorry, an inline suggestion that is, um, you know, just completes the rest of the line or might complete the, the parameters for a particular function that you're asking for um, and because they can almost subconsciously see that suggestion and say yes or no hit the accept hit the tab button and then move on from there we actually see more senior programmers uh love to use tab nine that direction and the more junior folks who might just be starting with a team or or just you know getting started in their careers will actually interact with it on the more conversational style Mm. No, it's a good point, actually. I think there's been something that's really sort of been lauded over the past 
a few months around, oh, I could just write this description and get code. But it's like, I think it's comparable with um, people saying, oh, you know, musicians and writers and artists, and no one will want to do anything anymore. It's like, I think you forget that we actually do these things because we enjoy them. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And sometimes the going through that process is actually fun as a human. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just because a tool exists doesn't mean we want to use it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Try, trying to give the options for people to use it in their own way, uh, I think, yeah. is, a gr is a great way yeah. to get adoption. Yeah. So um, final two questions. The last one is just um, in this increasingly busy space, uh, how will you keep ahead of the competition and make sure that people also hear about you and, and your offer to, um, to ensure that. Oh, boy, yes. It's shouting into a hurricane right now in terms of the PR space. And, you know, we're just a small startup, less than 40 folks um, around oh, wow. the globe. So, you know, we, we are fighting, uh, we're fighting an uphill battle. But I think the way that we're going to plan on doing that is, is one, working with uh, some, some great PR folks and, you know, spending some time out there. But uh, the other one is we're really listening to enterprise customers, right? Mm -hmm. We're going in there and saying, this is new to them as well. And they want to know how to best use this and also use it in a way that, that is, you know, secure and compliant with the way that most of them operate. And when you listen to them, that really sets our pipeline for how we want to engineer specifically to enterprise mm -hmm. asks. So, you know, that's the way we're going to continue to do it. And I think we're going to find some good success there. Mm -hmm. And I can see if anyone is interested in doing some comparisons, there is a free tier, which just mm -hmm. gives these um, short completions. Mm -hmm and uh, open source uh, training. Mm -hmm. And then the pro one adds in, I, I think some of that, what you said about writing comments and things like that, and also the, the internal learning. Um, I think that's the thing that's most interesting. So there's also a free trial. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> see if that works for you. Yep. Uh, I'm also fascinated to see you offer um, integration with most of the the expected uh, editors but also a couple of unexpected ones as well vim um, yeah. emacs which i don't think any of the other support so and they're pretty popular so mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, <so> yep <laughs> yeah we uh, uh there's, there's, that's a, uh, that's a bit of a, um, Pandora's box. Once you start, uh, you know, supporting all these IDs, you have to continue supporting the IDs mm -hmm. and, and they all change at different velocities and yeah. rates. So, um, we do find that most people are VS code or any of the JetBrains IDs, but yeah. there's a surprising number of people who use Vim and, you know, that's why we, that's mm -hmm. why we try to support that. So, um, and of course we're always open to additional suggestions from enterprise yeah. if they have it. Out of pure interest, uh, just cause I have also tested it. It's not as widely known, but have you also looked at uh, JetBrains um, Gradsy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we're always trying to sort of see where the competition is coming and and how they're working. Um, I'm not familiar with the back end for the JetBrains, like exactly how they're doing what they're doing. Uh, a surprising number of these sort of AI code startups uh, are. <laughs> Like, I don't blame them, right? They're taking advantage of the of, of the PR right now, but they're a bit thin wrapper. So, you know, you mm -hmm. peel back the hood and it's a UX on top of an API called a GPT, uh, which, mind you, is fine, right? But, you know, you have to realize that I think to be really successful in this space, especially with enterprise customers, there's no getting away from hosting your own infrastructure, having mm -hmm. your own yeah. ML engineering knowledge. That's yeah. key to being successful here, I think. 
I think that is that's going to be a, a big topic moving forward. I was at a meetup um, a couple of weeks ago on this very topic, uh, and just you know we've already had this this black box of understanding code and the vulnerabilities in it, and now we're adding an even bigger box mm. to that uh, that I think a lot of people will really want to understand before they just unleash it on their business. <laughs> it's, and that, that, that is a really salient point and observation, right? I think I wrote a, a, a sort of an ethics type blog yeah. um, that's posted and it really is, you know, are we kind of removing human creativity by putting these tools in place for, you know, Hey, they're all going to sort of be suggesting the same thing. So why think outside <laughs> the box? Um, yeah. I think there's, there's certainly ethical considerations with these tools. Mm. We can't get away from that. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Um, just as a nice little wrap up, what you've mentioned a few things along the way, but what else is on the roadmap for say the next six months? Um, on our side, we're going to be teaming the LLM suggestions as an input prompt for enterprise search. So this is okay. a way for companies to absolutely guarantee best practice distribution to their individual developers on a global scale. A lot of enterprises like this idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's pretty interesting. We're also going to try to enter, uh, to integrate tab nine with the um, PR slash MR process. So mm -hmm. you submit code and it analyzes that and then might come back and say, Hey, there's a couple of other files over here that are very similar. You might want to mm -hmm. check those out as well. So just trying to lower that barrier. Yep. I think you, did I, was I wrong? I feel like you, oh no, how, how can AI code assistant help reduce production bugs? You can now talk about, um, how it can also help you refactor, I suppose. <laughs> Indeed. Yep. That'll be a thing as well. Brilliant. Awesome. Thanks very much for your time. Yes. Thank you for having me on. And that was my interview with Marshall from Tab nine. A few updates from me. I have a post on Medium about my creative writing setup, which is actually proving quite popular. Um, getting a lot of feedback on Medium from it. And I'm just about to publish the text version of my video on uh, writing with JetBrains new uh, tech writing plugins for IntelliJ IDEs. I looked at PseudoWrite, which is quite an interesting creative writing focused AI assistant. I looked at DCAP CMS, the um, rebranded project of Netlify CMS, which uh, doesn't quite work right now, but I took a look at it anyway. I looked at NixOS and the ecosystem around it last week, and I think that's it. I think that's it. <laughs> I've also got another post I'm going to be publishing in the next couple of days. I locked myself out of the house last Friday and wrote a post on how I managed to somehow work on my phone all day, or maybe I didn't, um, so you can find that there. I think that's everything for now. My new website is still getting updates here, there, and everywhere. And um, I'll be putting out some uh, short story collections very soon, but I'm just getting some artwork commissioned there. So I think that is everything for now. Head on over to christianchilder.com for everything I mentioned and video schedule for the next week. And uh, yeah, I will be in Portugal uh, in the next uh, week and a bit. So if you happen to be there and want to meet up, um, send me a message and we'll see if we can arrange something. But until then, thank you very much for joining me and take care, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. 
And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind-the-scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.